0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, I uh, have a bit of sickness going through our house at the moment, so please excuse me if I need to stop and have a drink of water. Come, Lord Jesus, who's found themselves saying that just a little more often of late. In our small nation, we have seen the tide turn further against God. Uh, Truth has been exchanged for a lie and wisdom replaced with foolishness. The God we worship, the God of love and goodness, has become an enemy. So threatening is he that it is not even permissible for his people to meet in an Estedford hall. The decline in Christian values and departure from God are greatly discouraging to me, and thus I find myself saying more and more, come Lord Jesus. But the question I need to ask myself is, how will I respond to the discouragement I face? The words, come Lord Jesus, are an appropriate prayer for a Christian. After all, John prays it as the second last verse in the Bible. But in my discouragement, I must not forget that to live is Christ. Philippians 1.21 That is, I must not neglect the life God has given me, the task he has laid before me, and the faithful obedience he has called me to. As Trevor mentioned earlier, we begin a new sermon series today, uh, working through the book of Zechariah. The people Zechariah was writing to were greatly discouraged as well. But Zechariah's visions and prophecies are about the blessings and goodness God wants to bestow on his people. In short, it is a book of hope, hope in the reign of God over his people and over all the earth. However, the first six verses of the book, which we heard Glenda just read, uh, they seem a strange way of beginning a book about hope. Anger, judgment, evil practices and warnings. So to understand this strange beginning, we're going to have a look. Sorry, we're going to have to take a look at the context of this book and what has led to Zechariah using these words. So therefore, today's message will firstly look at the historical background and context of the book, and then we'll look specifically at verses 1 through 6. But first, let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may you reveal yourself to us through your word today. May we know your promises to us, and may they give us hope. Lord, would you help us to find motivation in your words to live our lives with greater faith, and obedience to you, because of the mercy and grace you have shown us. Amen. Well, God had made his chosen people, the Israelites, into a great nation. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt and went ahead of them to conquer the promised land. Yet continued unfaithfulness and idol worship provoked God's anger and eventual judgment. In 586 BC, Judah finally succumbed to defeat at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. The temple at Jerusalem was destroyed and God's people were taken into exile in Babylon, a once great nation reduced to living as aliens in a foreign country. God had moved against them to judge and punish them for their unfaithfulness. He had turned away from them. But this was not to be forever. God is sovereign not just over his people but over all nations. As prophesied a few hundred years earlier in Isaiah, chapter 45, God raised up a new world empire, the Persians, led by King Cyrus. God was going to use Cyrus to orchestrate the liberation of his people from exile. And so Babylon was conquered, and the Jewish people were now under a new regime in their exile, the Persians. In 538 BC, Cyrus permitted a remnant of 50,000 Jews to return to Jerusalem with instruction to rebuild the temple. He didn't send them alone either. He sent them with the plundered articles that had belonged to the temple and with orders for the rebuilding to be financed. But these Jews, who were permitted to return, set to work rebuilding the temple destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They completed the foundations of the temple in a short period of time, but then work ceased. Uh, we're going to read now from Ezra chapter 4, 4 to 5. If you have a Bible there, you can turn with me if you like. It's page 668, right at the top. This will help us, again, to understand more of the context of when Zechariah is writing. Then the peoples around them, that is, the non-Jews who were living in the area, set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So you can see the work on the temple came to a standstill. With their once great nation overthrown, their city and their holy temple destroyed, their years spent as aliens living under foreign rule, and now being greatly discouraged by those thwarting their rebuilding plans. I'm sure if these returnees knew of Jesus, they too would be saying, Come, Lord Jesus. But their eyes didn't seem to be on Jesus. So discouraged were they that their zeal for the Lord waned. We're going to Bible hop again. The prophet Haggai wrote at the same time as Zechariah in 520 BC, and his book reveals more to us about how the returned Jews responded to the command to rebuild the temple when faced with the discouragement from their neighbors. So if you could turn to uh, Haggai... Um, page 1,440. 1,440. This will be the last skip, I promise. <laughs> We're going to read from chapter 1, verse 3. And we read this. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house, the temple, remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. There are two things described in this passage. Firstly, things weren't great. Crops weren't growing, there wasn't enough food, and money didn't seem to go far. Secondly, they neglected God's building, they neglected his house, and focused on making themselves comfortable in their own panelled houses. So let's capture a snapshot of the people who Zechariah was addressing. After decades in exile, they returned home with a specific purpose – but could not bring themselves to complete the work. Their neighbours discouraged them and intervened to frustrate their plans. There is a drought, and economically speaking, things weren't good. Life doesn't seem great, and the excitement of leaving exile to rebuild the holy place of God has not panned out as expected. In their discouragement, they wandered from the path God set for them and became concerned only for their comfort. And so we come to the first six verses of Zechariah, which perhaps now make a little more sense. What does Zechariah tell them? Return to the Lord. So as I mentioned uh, earlier, this is a strange way to begin a book about hope. Through Zechariah, God warns them that he is angry and that they need to repent. His warning is fueled by a reminder of the warning he gave their ancestors, which ended with God's judgment, the exile. There are a number of things that stick out for me in these first six verses. Uh, firstly, we learn that God was angry with their ancestors. In fact, not just angry, very angry, or angry with anger is the translation I read in one commentary. They were unfaithful and did not turn back when urged by the prophets of the time. So what did God do? Well, Jeremiah 44, 6 reveals, Therefore my wrath and anger poured out, and burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, so that they have become the desolate ruin they are today. So severe was his anger that he raised up another nation and handed his people over to them. Secondly, not only is God's anger severe, but it is certain. In verse 6, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. God may be slow to anger, but his wrath and his judgment is a reality. What he says he's going to do, he does, just as he did when he judged their ancestors. God's anger and judgment is not something we like to talk about. We find the idea that God can threaten us or deliver harsh punishments, cruel and unkind. Instead, we prefer to explain God in more gentle and loving ways. Yet here it is in front of us. God was angry with anger and judged his people. But I propose that his anger, his threats, and his judgment are loving. And we see how that can be the case in this passage. Uh, There's a saying some teachers live by with their new class at the start of every year. Never smile until Easter. Uh, The idea is that you send out a vibe that you're not someone to be messed with. When I started back in the classroom in July, I adopted a similar approach. I remember saying to Lucy before heading off for my first day, I need to find the smallest thing that somebody does wrong today and come down very hard on them for it. Now, it might sound cruel. I think I heard an oh. awe. <laughs> but what is my intent in that? My intent is to achieve an ordered and well-functioning classroom where everybody is learning. I... Threaten, if you like, and deliver punishment to ensure each child has the best chance of learning. God is just. He set the terms of the covenant with the Israelite people upon entering the promised land. And when those terms were broken, his judgment was delivered. God, through Zechariah, is telling the Jews about his anger and about his judgment as a warning and a threat. Do not be like your ancestors. Verse 4. However, like their ancestors, this returned remnant find themselves unfaithful as well. When discouraged by those living around them, they did not persevere in devotion to the Lord. Instead, the opposition they faced caused them to neglect God's work and focus on making themselves comfortable by conforming to the world. The intent of God's threats of anger and judgment is for them to see the seriousness and danger of their sin. It's to help them flee That sin. As I read in one article, God intends his warnings and threats to motivate us to repentance, perseverance, and growth in holiness. Now, I've deliberately skirted around one key verse in this passage, verse 3. Therefore, tell the people this is what the Lord Almighty says Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. This is God's intent. At the heart of it, Zechariah's message is one of mercy for these people. It's one of grace, of unmerited favor. God is calling for them to return to him. His messages of anger and judgment aren't chest-beating or cruel, vindictive displays of power. They are messages or a message of love. They're a motivation to return to the shelter and protection of the Lord Almighty. God wants to restore the relationship with his people. He did not wish for them to remain in exile, to remain discouraged, to remain in their state of judgment. As we continue in our series on Zechariah, we'll see that he had a promise of goodness and blessings for his people. There were blessings for their near future, including restoring the temple and regathering the community of the Jews. And there were blessings for their distant future, including their eternal cleansing through Jesus and his eventual ultimate victory over evil in his second coming. But this could not happen without them first repenting. A reverent fear of the Lord is what Zechariah used to draw them back to a restored relationship with God so that blessings could flow, or at least that was the aim. So how is this similar to us? There are some similarities to draw between us and the people Zechariah was speaking to. Although millennia apart, our time's are alike, Like them, God is seeking to restore his relationship with us and offer blessing and hope. For God to be just, sin deserves punishment. So he sent Jesus to receive the judgment that we deserve. In doing so, he has made the pathway back to him simple. He calls us to repent so that his blessings of eternal life can flow to us. 1 Peter, verse 3 to 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Like them, God has given us a task. For them, it was to build the temple. And while we know God is not confined to living in a temple, the temple in Jerusalem was a sign of God dwelling amongst his people. It was the representation of his kingdom here on earth. For us, the temple is not a physical structure. God's people are the temple, and he dwells in us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Our task, too, is to build God's temple, or to make disciples, Matthew 28. And our part in that, however small, matters. But also like them, we are foreigners or aliens in this land. As Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. Being foreigners means we will feel out of place and discouraged. Others will try and obstruct us and we will feel the very real temptation to make ourselves comfortable here because that's just easier than waiting sometimes. We live in a now, not yet time. It's like the period between being engaged and actually getting married. You know the wonderful day is approaching, but it's not here yet, and so you must wait. Or it's like winning two of the three State of Origin games. You know you've won the series, but there's still work to be done. We're certain of the blessings the Lord has secured for us when Jesus returns, but we must wait. So what does it mean for us while we are waiting? What can we learn from this message to Zechariah's audience? I have three things. Firstly, as the text says we need to return to the Lord. That is to repent. Be motivated by fear of God's anger and judgment and repent. The New Testament reading says, Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. This command and the one Zechariah gives is serious. We must take our sin seriously. We can so subtly be lulled into conformity with this world and seeking the comforts it offers here and now. In doing so, we endanger ourselves and invite God's anger and judgment. It requires that we constantly look at ourselves and repent of those areas in our lives where we have neglected God and holiness. In those areas, we must return to the Lord. Secondly, pray for our nation to turn back to God. Earnestly pray for our families, our neighbours, our co-workers, our leaders, and our enemies. Pray for those thwarting our kingdom-building efforts here at NHA. Just as the Jewish people were supposed to be building God's temple or his kingdom, God has called us to be building his kingdom by making disciples. That means praying these people will receive insight into God's anger and judgment And his offer of grace. Indeed, may that be our prayer for the whole nation. And lastly, do not be discouraged. Continue living faithfully in the face of discouragement. Christ's death on the cross and his glorious resurrection is victory. We know the outcome, we know the result. The Lord prevails, and Jesus promises there is a room for us in God's house. And he will come back and take us to be with him, John 14. And so as it says in our 1 Peter reading, we are to set our hopes on the grace to be brought to us when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Our discouragement will not last. At NHA, that means continuing to make disciples, whether that is here at the Estedford Hall, in another premises, or under a mango tree. As a church, we have learned the valuable message that the building in which we worship does not matter. What matters is that we faithfully live holy lives and complete the tasks, however small, that God has set before us, wherever that may be.